Kaya Drive with Seaswear. Monday to Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. On Kaya 959. Of all the people I thought would not keep African time, <laughs> this guy walks in. <laughs> and then. No, 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 no. I, 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 I had some, some confusion, but I'm glad, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I'm here. It's great to be on, on your show. I'm looking forward. I've been looking forward to it the whole time. So I'm looking forward to the afternoon with you. And yeah, certainly let's just hang. All right. Thank you very much for coming through. Um, there's a lot that people want to ask you. There's a lot of voice notes. Uh, and I think maybe we'll get to those eventually. Mm. But the one thing I know for a fact is that when you got a public profile, usually people will think they know you and very often that's not the case. So if you were to describe yourself to somebody who doesn't know you, how would you do it? I I guess the best I could say is, you know, Musi Maimane is just to be fair. I think I'm that... uh, you know, color feeling or seven colors. And so I have a diversity of experiences. I grew up in the township. I attended X Model C. I did a master's degree in economics and uh, theology. I've been in the church. I've been in politics. I've been in business. So I'm that, you know, salad or food. Uh, that's that dish that's got a diversity of things and so that's where I come from and so for someone who doesn't know me I think often it's because I've had the privilege to live a life that is full and diverse and I count myself as one of those South Africans who have the absolute commitment to make this country work and um, it's a privilege to to be alive in a time such as this one to be honest you were also an heir when you were younger you want to tell us about that? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know when I was when I was young, I I did this this Christian TV show. Uh, I can remember some of the interviews. Uh, it used to air on Sundays. It was called Crux, right? Crux mm. and um, and uh, funny enough, I didn't I I didn't know at the time why 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 I, why I, why I did it. Uh, part of it was to prepare over for a long period of time, but I enjoyed doing the show. It was one of my uh, it was a good fun. It was a good... I was a youth worker at the time, so it mm. gave me television prominence, but it also allowed me to to kind of carry on with the work that I was doing. And it was a fun show. We got to meet guests. We got to meet different international people. And I, I enjoyed it. It was, it, was, it was good fun. It was good television. And then would you say that's kind of where the idea of being in the public eye kind of emanated from? No, no not at all. Not at all. I... I did it because at the time, um, like a, like a young person, you know, I just I just finished school. Um, I needed not only to earn some income, but I I needed something to do that I thought it would be cool to be on TV mm. and it'll be cool to kind of put your voice out there. the The notion of being a public figure. I, I never thought I'd be a public figure in a political sense in one way. I actually. I always, when I did a master's in economics, I actually just wanted to be a bureaucrat. I wanted to serve in the background and build the engine. So when it came that actually the bureaucrats don't set the policy, but it's the politicians, it then became a space where I thought, now I need to go serve in this regard. So it was a lot more accidentally to be in the public space rather than the idea of just simply saying no I got up in the morning and said all I wanted to do was just be in the public space it wasn't like that at all 
In fact, even still today, when people meet me, you will not believe this. I, I know this will be strange to you, but I'm I'm actually much shy in person. I in high school I was one of those guys, you know. Yeah. We didn't and and even still today uh, enjoy my company, my own company the most. I I don't like always being with people. But it's nice to I've had the privilege to that show allowed me to be comfortable with public speaking with public Mm. speaking and also you must recall when you're doing a lot of big political events the first thing you get confronted with is a number of cameras in front of you and unless you've been comfortable with that sometimes it comes across in that way so because it is a performance it, it is and I and I'm and I'm thankful I thank God for that experience to be quite honest with you I really am because um yeah, it was it, it it gave me the comfort to stand in front of the lens and not feel like this was out of place. But the purpose behind it has served me well to this point. Is there a phone that's ringing? Ah, I think it's yours. Oh, oh. actually, there's music playing. Okay, cool. Ah, you see, you did TV, but you don't know which you got to put your phone on silent. It's, it's, it's on silence. <laughs> I've just got headphones on. All right, all right. So anyway, okay, we've got Moose in the studio. Uh, luckily, he joined us. Just as the first hour is about to end, we'll dedicate the next two hours to speaking to him. If you've got any questions, you can give us a shout 086-00-0959. Hit us up on WhatsApp as well, 63 I'm glad you're here and I'm thankful. I'm actually thankful that you answered that question, honestly, because when you say you never thought you were going to be a politician, I'll tell you why I think that makes sense. Second hour of the show, joined in studio by the one and only founder of One South African Movement, Mr. Musi Maimani. So, in the first hour, we spoke about how you never really thought you were going to become a politician up until you actually went through tertiary and you're like, hey, cool, I want to get into policy making. And then you found out, Wootsie, this is done through these measures, right? Uh, I suppose at that point, you then need to select a vehicle within which you're going to carry out your duties. How do you end up at the DA? And I'll tell you, the reason why I believe you when you say that is because I know that the DA wasn't your first choice. Look, as as a topsy, let me first of all say I I started off at the ANC, mm. right? And kind of those were our politics, whether whether you accepted it or not. That's what you grew up with. Ekasi, you didn't have a choice. You, in fact, you were part of it. Mina, I grew up. It, I was fourteen in ninety four. Mm. Which meant that for the bulk of the time, the period between 1990 and 1994 were some of the most violent times I think our country has seen. Mm. Right. So part of the memories of apartheid in that sense was violence between what was going on in the hostels and what was going on in communities. That was life for us. So even if you weren't interested in politics, what became common cause was that politics was interested in you. Mm. So, And all of us were politically conscious in that way. We had activists from Azania, from Apla, we had the whole kind of, in the street, there was a cosmopolitan of political figures. And then post that, we all thought, no, we could work in this ANC thing to try and advance what was going on. And then you kind of realize, you know, as early as that, it became common cause I'm not sure it feels like the meetings were just about other things other than what was happening in our communities etc and then I kind of disengaged the whole political landscape 
got involved in church, got involved in business. I, I did a lot of that kind of work. And then I can recall literally sitting in in one of my economics lectures by, by, by a really great professor. And I thought to myself, yeah, at this point, we need an economic reset in the country at, mm. at the time. And I thought, how can I go about it? So then I wanted to go back to where it initially all started, you know, and I realized Uguti, on the black, green and gold side. There's a long it's, queue. It's a, let alone the long queue, there was just chaos. I mean, to be honest with you, no one could tell us what the country was going through, uh, where it was going. And besides that, and then we moved on to, I can even remember speaking to Chris Malikan at the time, who was the econ- economist for uh, Kosatu at the time, mm. and, and trying to figure out what they were about, and I, I couldn't work it out. What got me into the dear bizarrely, was I was doing some work actually close by here in Rosebank. Mm. And we were dealing with the plight of uh, homeless people who were sitting on the side of the streets. And we had this debate about the difference between unemployed and underemployed. Mm. And eventually I was like, so I met a DAMP. We spoke about what were you doing for the city? I don't think I was attracted to the DA's ideology so much as I was attracted to their ability to deliver. In the sense that at the time, I credibly believed they were running a competent government, which I thought that's what South Africa needed at the time. So the entry into that took a lot of convincing, took a lot of days. But from where we were working, we realized if we want to sort out the city of Joburg, considering all the informal settlements that we've already been doing work in, I needed to put my hand up. So I started off by saying, let me be the counselor just for our ward, because in our ward, we needed to end help Bengtlala, you know, out in the West Rand, Zanspreit was down the road. Mm. I said, how is it that in my house, I've got three toilets, but there are people down the road with no toilets. Mm. So let's deal with that situation. And that's what inspired me and moved moved me into public politics in that sense. I stood up, I said, I want to just be the ward counselor. That's what I want to do. So maybe let's backtrack a little bit because you spoke about political ideology. What is your political ideology as Musi sitting in front of me right now? Yeah. And then also as Musi back in, that would have been 2009, right? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, th- I think, uh, you know, ideology is a funny thing, right? Because I think sometimes we can put people into into boxes. There are certain things... Um, just as a function of my own faith, I'm a bit conservative about, but I'm economically much more liberal than on other things. So, mm. so I think sometimes I'm, I'm very reluctant always to kind of go into you are this or you are that, because the moment you say I'm more liberal in certain views, then people say, oh, you allow young people to watch porn or whatever the thing mm. is, you know, right? So, so I think there's that challenge. The second thing is I think economically I'm much more center-right in that I think that you need a, a functioning economy that stimulates... Uh, economic activity through private citizens and you need a state that protects. So so ultimately you would put me more in the social justice kind of center-right space. But where I've come to land who Musi at its core is, and so that's a maturing discussion all of itself, is that I've really come to meditate at length about conceptually what is Ubuntu mean within the context of Africa and within the context of the economy and where South Africa is. Mm. 
And the first acknowledgement behind that is that I needed to sit back and have spent quite a lot of time reading the works of people like Steve Biko in understanding what black consciousness was trying to communicate at the time. Secondly, is this post-DA or pre-DA? Okay, Post. So there's been a lot of work that I've had to invest in trying to understand not only me, but understanding what I want to respond to economically. And I've come to land in a space that says the uniting value that drives us as African, that's not an import, that's not something else, comes from this value of Ubuntu, which others confuse to mean socialism at some level. But I do think it, at, at, at its basic sense, it begins to attack the notion that says we have to have shared prosperity if we're going to prosper as people. Secondly, you can't continue the level of inequality as we see it as it sits. Mm. And thirdly, there must always be justice in any economic model that you put on the table. Otherwise, you end up with people being left out of it. So I've now invested a lot of way. And if you'll recall... I think even my last speech at the DA Congress, I began to speak a little bit about this idea of what does African liberalism mean? Because I think we kind of import a Western ideology of what liberalism means. We go to America and we start debate right and left and wokeism and that, but we fail to land back to what does this continent mean in a contestation of liberation and post-liberation, in a contestation where I as an individual are part of a collective, in a conversation where I've got to sit back and say the economy as it sits has got multiple facets to it. So how do we attend to that? So so I think I, I'm working on maturing my position and even the work that I'm reading now is really focused on saying, how do we work in a post-ideological universe to achieve shared prosperity for all citizens? Join in studio by founder of the One South African Movement, Mr. Musi Maimani. I drive on the streets, on the air, we everywhere. Join in studio by Musi Maimani. And before we went to an ad break, you were speaking about his political ideology, how that's morphed post-DA. Uh, he's had to do some soul searching. And you know, I'll tell you something. When I was younger... I used to think that the day would come where a politician who spoke like me, listened to the sort of music I listened to, lived my sort of lifestyle, would kind of be in leadership. And I thought that person would unite us as a country. And I thought that was the most ideal situation. Uh, I then kind of grew and I was like, okay, maybe that situation is less than ideal. And as I sit here now, I think maybe... That's not the time for that kind of politician yet. For reasons that I'm sure you are aware of, uh, but I suppose just to mention one, the inequality in this country is astounding. Anybody who would then govern for somebody like me would not be doing justice to the majority of South Africans out there who are affected by this inequality a lot more than I am. Uh, it's not to say I don't need a government that will help me. Yeah. But I definitely need a government that will help them first before they can help us. Even the issue of unity, right? It's not that people don't want unity. We do want unity. But before that, we need to fix a lot of the wrongs, right? Yeah. So now, I say this to say, when you went to the DA, some people felt betrayed by that because they view the DA as a racist organization. Whether or not it is, I'll ask you later and you can answer. When you were there for the four years that you were, do you not feel then that there was a wasted opportunity on your part where you could have done more for the people that you actually want to change the country for? Yeah, uh, look, 
we worked incredibly hard. I mean, when I was in the DA, the bulk of my investment was to build an organization that would unite South Africans. Mm. But um, unite people around shared values because we don't just unite for unity's sake. At one level, it's about the pursuit of a racially harmonized society. At another level, it's about achieving economic justice. And I think that pursuit is not something that must be fought by one race. It ought to be fought by all of us. Mm. So when you say you want a government that will work for you, that will work for others before it gets to you, in some ways, the invitation and the work that I'm trying to do is to say, I want to invite all citizens to recognize that the challenge of inequality and poverty is a shared struggle. Something that all of us must be engaged with. Even if you are wealthy in this country, you must recognize that poverty at its core impacts and affects all of us. And there should never be peace in this country so long as there are increasing levels of poverty and inequality as we see it. So given that context, yeah, we worked, we worked incredibly hard. And I thought... We were starting to make progress as we were governing in more places. You can ask Herman Mashaba on any given day, he'll tell you. One of the questions I used to ask permanently in the DA, on whose behalf are you fighting and are you fighting against abuses of power? And I'd insist that we focus on communities that were left out, whether those were in Alex or Weto, but it wasn't to the neglect of an economically working city. And that was true in Nelson Mandela Bay, it was true in Tswane, all of that. So we worked incredibly hard until at the loss of uh, votes in the 2019 election, there were others that said, you are working too hard to achieve that. Therefore, we must go back to our traditional base. And then I think the vision stopped being about all of South Africa. It became about something else. So now this is where I need to challenge you, right? I'm not going to ask you why you stayed in the DA that long, because I don't think that's a fair question, to be quite honest. A lot of people, as we speak now, work for organizations that they disagree with, but they stay there because, you know, maybe they need the income or they're hoping they can change the organization from within, et cetera, and so on. What I will ask you, though, is as a person who then rose to be the third most powerful person in parliament, South African parliament, right? You've got the leader of the governing party, speaker of the house. You are the leader of the opposition. What is it that you say you worked on tirelessly to change that status quo within the DA? Because, again... From the outside watching in, it seemed like the DA carried on disrespecting black people, even within the party. Whether we're talking about James Self, whether we're speaking about Helen Zilla, whether we're speaking about uh, Diane Cola Barnard. And it seemed like even with you as a federal chair and leader of the DA, you could do nothing about it. No, I, I think that's, uh, that's an unfair session. I mean, the first thing is, what were we working towards? There are a couple of things that you've got levers on as a leader in an organization. The first is, what is the vision of the organization and what are its values? I articulated a vision for how we can build a South Africa for all, which for others felt like it was a, they started even calling us things like we're ANC light, but it wasn't. It was a pursuit of that racially harmonized society. So I articulated that. I fought for the constitutional amendment within the DA that insisted that even a clause like diversity be included in that because I recognized that it wasn't a contestation of one race versus another, but it needed to be in the constitution so that future generations of the DA will always know that that's the case. Thirdly, if you will recall, 
I was the one fighting from a policy point of view to achieve economic redress, which has been part of the reason why the DA has now done a, a positioning that says they are colorblind so that you don't deal with that question. Then the last issue is in the selection of mayoral candidates, leadership all across the DA. When I was leader of the DA, I said, make no mistake, in 2019, the list we presented was far more filled with more black people than it ever had before because I refused to accept that you could position a party and say that the, the entire list of MPs were white. But even mm. then, yeah. without you even rising to prominence in the DA, there had already been black leadership, right? So uh, your predecessor, uh, Lindy Mazibugo, had been there. Uh, Dr. Mampele Rampele had been there in a, <laughs> a coalition kind of uh, situation. So there had been what you can call window dressing within the DA. No, but I think if you think about Lindy, where she was just even just in a parliamentary leadership role. So she had a different role to what I had. Mm. Uh, I can't talk about the Mampele Rampele scenario because I was one of the people that 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 spoke up against it because I thought there was something inauthentic about it. Mm. And I think Memampele, who I respect, will attest to that. But I, I do think in this particular instance, it was never tokenism because you'll recall that even when we came to real matters of power, we talk about mayoral candidates. Uh, I think, you know, we went out, we worked out to make sure that Dehem and Mashaba got in there. Mm-hmm. We made sure that Solim Simanga was the mayor there. We made sure Patricia DeLille at the time was the mayor in, in the city of Cape Town. You'll remember then Ethel Trollope. So, so I think you need to realize that the project of political leadership is both stepping ahead and seeing the vision, but being able to build the, 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 the organization with you. Were there people who disrespected that? Absolutely. Were the people I was in conflict with? You make no mistake. Uh, I took the fight against Helen Zilla. And in fact, others would argue the case that that was part of the un- discomfort within the DA because I couldn't put up with comments that were made um, and led the fight even against people like Diana Kola Barnard and said there must be direct action when these situations take place. But realize that this is an organization that's been around for a long time. And I'm not unique in that scenario. I think there are many black South Africans who lead in corporates where they've got to work at the change process. But it's not so that one race can triumph over another. It's so that we can ultimately bring everybody together. So, so, so I worked hard. And, and when it was rejected, I left the DA literally not thinking to myself I'm going to get a salary or anything like that. When I left that day, I technically joined the people who are earning 350 uh, on the Tez thing. So I literally stuck it out of principle. <laughs> Joined in studio by Musi Baimani, founder of One South African Movement. Bob Marley, One Love on 959 is Kai Drive on the streets on the air. Now, Musi, if you were bold enough to say that One South African Movement is a party, this, I assume, would be your theme song. But you haven't <laughs> said that. You played it very safe. You said, no, we are movement, yes. uh, which is what the EFF started off as saying. And then when they realized they had enough traction, all of a sudden they were a party. Oh. Uh, so, you know, I know you've got independent candidates that you are supporting. Should they win? I know you're going to come back into this and be like, hey, look what we did. But if they don't, also you're like, ah, we're just a movement. No, but uh, and we want to keep that character like that because mm-hmm. we're, we've kept an association of independence in communities. I mean, today I was out campaigning. I didn't. You know, I wasn't all one South Africa in that sense. We were dealing with a new horizon movement. And so and so I, I do think that every community needs to have its power. At my core, to be honest with you, I think one of the biggest challenges of our democratic era 
is that we surrendered power to political parties and communities have become spectators to political power. Mm-hmm. Now we have to invert that and give power back to the people. So, And the reason that there was massive temptation and there was massive opportunity to start another political party. But we've stuck the course two years on and we've worked hard to be the movement that will achieve those ideals and support people to get power back. Because at the end of the day, let the people be in charge. What happened between you and Herman Mashaba? Because I know that for the first 72 hours after he resigned and you also stepped down, there were serious talks. How did they break down? No, there was. There was. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and I don't, I don't really think it was even a breakdown of issues. It's a, you know, I happen to think politics is a bit like singing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, put out a few tracks and if the people like your music, they'll buy it. You yourself can't tell yourself you can sing. Everyone can sing in the shower. It's up to whether people buy your album. That's the first. And the second is... But then just like, just like singing, choral music often sounds better. So (laughs) if you guys had formed a a choir, and I'll even give you an example of once you and Julius started working together, you guys got a lot more traction in Parliament. I'm sure you remember that. Yeah. Uh, And I always feel like with the opposition... You always missed opportunities. And I'm talking all of you as opposition. You always missed opportunities to hold the NC to account. You spoke about it in parliaments, but you never did. Whenever general elections came up or even local elections where the party had scored on goals, you guys failed to capitalize. No, but I think, uh, I think let's also be fair in that regard. At least in 2016, I can sit here today and say the NC was out of the major metros. You know, the four metros that we governed at the time and uh, dictate close to about 70% of local government's GDP. So I think part of that was the push that forced Zuma even to go because mm. they were losing elections. But to come back to your earlier question, I maintain that the reason we've remained a movement is also to advance this view of a direct election. And part of the argument that myself and uh, Mr. Mashaba in any case got into was to say, I don't think another political party in a list of 50 is going to suddenly change the landscape to your argument. My argument still maintains we've got to reform the electoral law, give direct elections to people, work with citizens who are on the outside. Martin Luther King puts it so well. Change is demanded by the people who are on the outside. For the ones who are on the inside exist to protect themselves. So so ultimately, I want to get back to working with citizens broadly in this country so that we can have a collective voice of citizens from different ranges. If we're, if we're a political party, you'd say to me, we only attract politicians. But the privilege of being a movement allows us to work with business people, civic society leaders, um, NGOs. It's allowed us the space to truly entrench ourselves into communities. And I genuinely believe if we're going to see change in this country, it's going to come through that way. That's how apartheid in many ways ended. People might celebrate the ANC, but they dare never forget the struggle waged by teachers, by lawyers, by business people contributing to the fight to end it. And I think if we're going to bring about the change now, it's going to take a movement of all South Africans. That's what I'm working on. And that, to me, cannot just be simply taken and packaged neatly into a political party. So that's one way to look at it, for sure. And I suppose if we assume that your heart is pure and so are your intentions, then yes, that would be true. You know, but people are different. So... In order to, first of all, start off with any kind of movement, as an economist, you realize you need funding. 
that's a beginning of pretty much everything. It's part of the reason why the ANC is in a perilous position right now because they're out of funds. Uh, and with the position that you held, it definitely gave you access to people who could give you funding so that you could start your own thing. Yeah. I mean, to date, you've given out over a million meals, right? For example, just to give you an example, yeah. it doesn't come cheap. That money has to come from somewhere. Sure. Um, if you look at what other parties have been able to do just in the campaign leading up to these local elections, you can also see that especially the opposition are well-funded, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I bring this up to then say money will always play a role, but so will constituency. Because a part of the reason why I feel you had to leave the DA is because even though you were catapulted to a prominent position, you hadn't solidified your constituency. And what you could be doing now is essentially going back to solidify the constituency. Let, let, me, let me respond to, to even the question about money. Mm. It's how much money. Uh, to run a national political party is a lot of money, right? But to really franchise the model of politics as we've put it now is less money, but broader participation. So then the influence of money in that instance is decreased in contrast to what you would be in a national political infrastructure. So that's a start. Secondly, consolidating the base, as you've put it. Um, I mean, let me just, as a sideline issue, if I'd stood in the DA's conference, I would have won. I mean, I think I'll challenge anyone to call. I would have won it. So that that had a different tone. It was out of principle I left rather than out of popularity I left. But to come back to this very question about how do we, mine is to say, how do we democratize systems? So it's not even just, I, I honestly, honestly, I think that one of the one of the days I realized I had to go, I remember speaking to President Ramaphosa and I said to him, hey, President, you know those women who are watching, out, who are marching to parliament on this gender-based violence issue? They're coming because parliament misrepresents them. The next time they come back here, you will not have an army to protect anybody. And I maintain that what South Africa has lost is grassroots leadership. So even if it's not constituency for me, it's about building that grassroots leadership. We've lost it. That's why when there were all of these riots that took place in the recent while, the failure that we were able to do, which political institution was able to deploy a leader to say, go and converse with the people? No one could do it. And so for me, the bigger question is, it, regardless of whether you build anything, who has the leadership at grassroots level to be able to mobilize society around shared values? And we've lost that. We, do, we simply do not have it. That's what I'm trying to build. And I'm grateful that actually you can get to communities and build it. Okay. We've got a tweet here um, that I want to read to you. I'm pretty sure you've seen it already because they tagged you. But it leads me to the points that I think... Uh, we're going to move to next. Because listening to you speak right now, I realize that perhaps you are a different person than what many would have thought while you were still leading the DA. Having said that, though, the reason why they would have thought that was through your own viewing, or your own doing, I should say, uh, and how you articulated yourself. Mr. Sim saying, the brains that you wasted buying on a narrative that didn't speak to a mass of South Africa, you'd be our president by now. We wouldn't give, We won't give up on you, though. We know that you have potential, but you cannot be trusted too. You are like slow poison. Now, I wouldn't use that wording specifically, but I will say this. He's not wrong in saying 
you camouflaged yourself so much within the DA that your essence was lost. If this indeed now is your true essence, right? Mm. So there's just one of two things. Either you are not being earnest with us back then or you're not being honest with us now. <laughs> it's either one of the two. Firstly, it's, it's, it's not about honest, honesty or, or guys or any of that. I think I've always been. It's just that sometimes when people see you in a particular way, mm-hmm. um, the City Press reports this weekend that one of the brand attributes that the DA suffers from, not my words, is that it, the party is seen as racist, right? So naturally, if that is the brand attribute that people sit on, and you become the leader of that as a black South African, you can appreciate that before you even have opened your mouth, people have concluded a particular frame about you. And here's my gratitude, that regardless of that frame, you are correct when you say, uh, I was able to collaborate with many of the leaders. I was probably one of the only few dear leaders was able to get around the table, whether it's the UDM, the EFF, anybody, because there was an authenticity that that would bring people together. But what I think has happened now is that being freed from that frame, now people ask you different sets of questions and they view you differently. But because also, you carry yourself differently But I've too, also though. allowed myself the freedom to be free, as it were. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, yeah, I, and also, you know, leading a big organization like the DIA has its own stresses, its own pressures, all of those things. I am grateful that, like any other leader, you find your voice as you keep going. And I've become a lot more comfortable with that. I'm not a father of three kids. A little bit older you get, you chill. Now, now I don't care. As if you disrespect <laughs> me on Twitter, I'm going to come after you. So, so it's a it's a long and the short of it. Now I'm much more chilled, I think, and much more getting to grasp with what needs to be done. I think one of the problems of being stuck in a political party is that sometimes you can create, you've got a hammer and therefore you think everything is a nail. Mm-hmm. You eventually think, no, the party advances this position and sometimes any issue that comes up, you take that nail and you bash it with that, which pigeonholes you and sometimes makes you lazy to think. Whereas post that, I've had to grapple with questions about saying, what does universal healthcare coverage look like? You know, you could mm-hmm. quite easily in the DSA you know, privatize the whole thing. What does education look like? What does electing people look like? What kind of economy do you want to look at? So I've had two years really of introspection, thinking hard about things and allowing the full expression of who Musimai Mani can be. And I'm saying we keep growing as people. Joined in studio by One South Africa Movement founder, Musimai Mani. Kaya Drive with Seaswear, Monday to Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. on Kaya 959.